0: Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the third week of our series on Matthew 12 called Not My Messiah. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Well, we're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 32. And in this whole section of Matthew 12, it's really the question of saying who is jesus and and you know there's evidence where he's coming out and he's trying to give this evidence of you know, that he is the messiah and, and you have the, the religious leaders the pharisees continuing to come back and they're like well i don't want to accept him because because he's not the messiah that i want he's not the messiah that i expect and that's exactly what we're going to see going on this morning i we're going to start by reading this passage but i encourage you to keep your bible open throughout our time so you can see where the all the points of the message come from straight out of matthew but let me begin Matthew 12 starting in verse 22. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed saying, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is true that the spirit of God, uh, by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Whether it is uh, not with me, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. God bless the reading of this word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege of this time to be able to come and to be able to dive into your word. Thank you for the opportunity we have to praise you, to worship, to celebrate what you're doing. Father, I pray that your spirit would now speak, Father, through me and in spite of me. Father, that, that you would help each one of us to hear what, what you have for us today, that we would be open to the work of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. Father, I pray your blessing now in Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes we kind of come to something and we have certain expectations. They might be rooted in our desires, but, but, but we expect to see something. And as a result, we, we see only what we expect to see. Uh, and let me give you an example of that. There was a, an, an ad that was placed a while back in the Atlanta uh, Journal-Constitution uh, personal ad. And, and let me put the text of the ad up here. Uh, it says, companion-wanted, a single black female seeks companionship, Ethnicity, 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 um, yeah, it's easy for you to say. Ethnicity and important. I'm a very good looking girl who loves to play. I love long walks in the woods, riding in your pickup, hunting, camping, fishing trips, and cozy winter nights lying by the fire. Candlelight dinners will have me eating out of your hands. I'll be at the front door when you get home from work wearing only what nature gave me. Kiss me and I'm yours. And then add us a number and call this number and ask for Daisy. Well, you say, okay, what is that? Well, 15,000 men responded to this ad and found themselves talking to the Atlanta Humane Society about an eight week old uh, black laboratory retriever. <laughs> now you read that and you say, okay, that's pretty clear what it's saying, and but I expect something. And so I see what I expect to see. Now you might say, well, well, this is a little deceptive. I mean, put it in personal ads and they were kind of playing to that expectation. But, but sometimes, it's something that in spite of the evidence in spite of everything we still see only what we expect to see um you know we in a sense become blind to truth that's right in front of us let me give you another personal example i have an older brother and for 45 years of my life no one ever said that we looked at all alike and uh however a number of years ago we both separately decided to shave our head within about a month of each other and after that everybody says that they can't tell us apart I mean, so much so that you may question this. You know, he has, he has been with us in some Christmas Eve services. And after Christmas Eve service, a number of you have gone up to him and told him what a great service it was. Um, you know, so he's convinced or confused some of you all. So we, about, apparently we look a lot alike. Now we have a friend of ours, a common friend that we've known for decades. I don't see him real, real often. Uh, but one day this guy came up to me and it was after we had shaved our heads and he's talking to me and, and 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 as he's talking he said oh I said some starts talking about my son Lance and I'm like Well, I don't have a son Lance. My brother has a son Lance and so I, I say well you know, Actually Lance is Larry's son. I'm not Larry. I'm, I'm Mike and and so we continue talking and I realized that he still didn't hear me because he's still talking to me like I'm, I'm Larry and so I stopped him for a second time. I said, no, no, I'm not Larry, I'm Michael. We both shaved our heads back a couple months ago and, and now people confuse us. They say we look a lot alike. Now he heard something that I said, but he didn't hear everything that I said. And I knew he heard something because then he started talking about me. He, he told me, oh, well, several months ago, I had a chance to visit your brother's church and uh, he seems to be doing a really good job. And I'm like, well, actually I am my brother, I, you know. I." <laughs> I'm Michael, and, and I'm glad you think thinking. I, I think we're doing pretty well, too. Next time you visit, come up and say to, hi to me afterwards after your visit. And he still didn't hear me. I mean, he just, and he kept talking, and I just like, okay, I'll just be Larry for this conversation, you know, just. Now, now sometimes that can happen, and, and actually, that's exactly what we're going to see is going on here in Matthew 12. Jesus does this amazing miracle that reveals his miraculous power, divine power, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders are totally unable to see it. Uh, in a sense, they're, they're willfully blind by their expectations. So you now Matthew 12 tells us about this man who was oppressed by a demon. And, and part of that oppression, that demonic you know, oppression in his life was evident was uh, in physically as well. So that he was unable to, he was blind, he was unable to see, he was mute, he was unable to talk. And... Um, and in the midst of this, there is this amazing miracle. Jesus came and he touched him. He cast the demon out of him. Physically, he's he's freed as well. He can speak, he can talk. Everybody sees this and they're amazed. And the vast majority of the crowd looking at this, they attribute it to the obvious conclusion: this is a miracle of God. And you see that in verse 23. All the people were amazed and they said, Can this be the Son of God? They're saying, Can this be the Messiah? But not everyone agreed with this assessment. You see the Pharisees and the other religious leaders are looking at this and, and they were you there know, listening to Jesus but they weren't there to really listen. They weren't there to evaluate. Okay, well, is what he's saying match up with what the b- b- prophecies say about the Messiah? You know, they're not there evaluating his, his teaching. No, they had made a decision that, that he was wrong. You see, the, Jesus was saying a lot of things that disagreed with their opinions. And because Jesus agreed with, disagreed with their opinions, they just assumed that Jesus was wrong because they knew where they were right. And so in spite of the facts, in spite of this amazing miracle, they've got to somehow now explain it away. And, um, and, and so that's what we're seeing. It's a clear miracle. This man has been healed from the Holy Spirit. He's, been, he's now being blind. He was now seeing. It's obvious to all, but look at their conclusion in verse 24. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. He's saying he's casting demons out by demonic power, by Satan's power. And in a sense, we're going to see it's a totally illogical claim. But what they're really doing is they're saying, hey, you know, we have our conclusion. I know what's right. Don't bother me with the facts. You know, it's kind of they're blind, literally willfully blind to the truth that is right there in front of them. Now, it's not something that just was true then. The, The fact of the matter is that people even today even us we can be blind so that we only see what we want to see that, that we you know you know we're, we're looking we have certain expectations and we don't want to see anything outside of it now what's going on here is really in verse 28 you kind of see the core issue Jesus pointed out the issue he said if it, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you and when he's saying the kingdom of God he's implying that okay I'm the one bringing it you know, I am the one that is representing the kingdom of God. I am the Messiah. Now, what was the problem? Is that the religious leaders of the day, they were looking for the Messiah, but they wanted the Messiah that would fit their expectations and their desires. You see, they're looking at it and they saw the big problem is Rome. We're good people. And, and, and because we're good people, God's going to do the things that we expect him to do. The bad people are the Romans. They're the, po- they're the problem out there. And so what they wanted is they wanted a Messiah that would come and affirm how good they are and overthrow the Romans and put them in charge. But Jesus comes and preaches a message and he said, okay, no, the big problem isn't the evil out there, the big problem is evil in here. The problem is that you all are sinners, that we all have sin and, and the problem isn't the evil that, is, that needs to be overthrown, the problem is that we have a sin problem that God needs to deal with and he ultimately dealt with it at the cross. And, and they're looking at it and saying, we're the good people and who should be in. And Jesus said, no, it's not good people that are in and bad people that are out because all of us are sinners. It's ultimately the humble people that get in. The humble people that acknowledge their sin problem, that acknowledge the need and accept the gift of Christ. They're the ones that are in. And it's the proud people who never get into the kingdom of God. Now, the thing is, is that I still... See some of this. I'll talk to people, and they'll tell me about how they reject Jesus and they don't believe Jesus. They'll give me all these reasons, and but at the end of the day, you know, usually the reasons are really more excuses. Um, they're starting with this, their assumptions, and here's. But at the end of the day, it's it's really I don't want a God to whom I'm accountable. And those well, here's the reason. Here's the and and, and it's and we're going to see it's, it's exactly what's going on here. It's not based on logic. It's not based on truth. It's not based on, I've really studied this. Very few people actually have. It's based on this presupposition that I don't want there to be a God and I'm going to be blind to anything that tells me otherwise. Now let's see how it plays out here in Matthew chapter 12. It starts with this this, uh, miracle where Jesus does this miracle and this miracle reveals the truth. Verse 22, there was a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute and he was brought to Jesus and he healed him and so the man spoke and saw. Now, we read, when we read everyone's response, the Pharisees and the people, what's obvious is that no one questioned the miracle. No one questioned that this guy had been demon oppressed, no one questioned that he had been blind and mute, no one questioned that he was healed, no one questioned that Jesus had, had some authority and did some miracle. The question is, what did it mean? And so what you have is you have this this thing in it. And again, now it's a miracle that showed something about Jesus' authority. It showed something about his identity. Because think about this miracle. In this miracle, he showed that he had ultimate authority both over the spiritual realm. He had the authority to cast out demons and over the physical realm. That he had the authority to, to heal somebody that was blind and somebody that was mute. And if he had this authority over both the physical and the spiritual realm, what did that say about his identity, who he was, who has that kind of authority. And the vast majority of people look at this and right away they jump to the right conclusion. You know, they say, can this be the son of God? You know, we see this power, we see this authority, he's casting out an evil spirit. This must be the son of David, you know, or it's a title for the Messiah. This must be the Messiah that we've been talking about, the one that is is coming and ushering in the kingdom of God. But not only that, but there's something in this miracle itself that, that's teaching us. There's a symbolic nature of what's being done here. You think about this man. He's, what was his problem? He was oppressed by a demon. And because he was oppressed by the demon, one of the, ma- or the manifestations of that was physical, that he was blind and he was mute. He couldn't see and he couldn't talk. And what happens is that Jesus comes and he heals him from the, from the evil spirit. And suddenly, as a result, he can see and talk. Now let's think about the Pharisees. Okay, what's their problem? We're gonna see that ultimately their core problem is that they're spiritually blind. They're spiritually willfully blind. They're unable to see truth that is right in front of them. And because they're spiritually blind, it impacts their speech as well. So they're gonna say things that are totally illogical, totally make no, no sense, but that's an outgrowth of their blindness. Now, where does that come from? Think about the context. The guy that was blind, why? Because he was controlled by an evil spirit. So what's that saying here about the Pharisees? Not only the Pharisees, but all that reject Jesus. See, there's a spiritual battle going on here that ultimately they were blinded by, by Satan, by his, by his authority, See, this is actually something the Bible teaches throughout so for example in 2nd Corinthians 4 it says this in their case the gods of this world have blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God it's saying, this is a problem and all of us apart from God we need the healing touch of God we need to be able to come and to be able to say okay I can't see that I'm blind and, and the question is are we going to come to him and welcome his healing touch or like with the Pharisees when you see that healing touch to come to run away because because I don't want that. I don't want to see. I I, I like what I see now and I don't want to I don't want to, I don't want to see what you're going to show me. That's the question. Now Jesus does this amazing miracle and, and again nobody questions that it happened. No one questions that it showed authority. The question is what did it mean? And you again you see two contrasting responses. Verse 23 all the people were amazed and said can they be be the son of David they're looking at that and saying okay he healed a man from an evil spirit clearly this must be of God this is a power from God and so he must be the Messiah but the Pharisees on the other hand are looking at the same thing and immediately reject that interpretation why because they don't want him to be from God you see, they don't want to change their thinking. They don't want to, they, they have their truth again, you know, and it's kind of something else. It's closed my ears, you know, you know I, I don't want anyone to tell me otherwise. And so what they do is they come up with another explanation. Verse 24, they heard it and they said, this can only be by Beelzebub, the prince of demon, demon that this man cast out demons. See so again, they couldn't deny the real authority that Jesus had here. They couldn't deny that he had done a miracle. So instead they're arguing that his authority must be from a different source. But what we're going to see is this is a completely irrational and foolish argument. It makes absolutely no sense. And that's exactly what Jesus points out in the next verses. The total, you know, illogic, illogical argument that they're saying, and he just answers it with logic. And he doesn't start even by saying, okay, here's prophecies. Here's, he just, okay, let's, let's just think about that for a moment. He almost, and this is almost like, you know, back up, you know, don't be absurd. Think about it. Put on, you know, put on, you know, just think a little bit. Look at verse 25. He said, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, then he's divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? And he's appealing to basic logic. You know, if you have a country in civil war, the country is gonna fall eventually. If you have a a home that you've got two different things, two different agendas, the home's gonna be torn apart. Or you think even like within our church, to say, okay, here we are, we're a church and preaching the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ. But what happens if we have a church and we say, hey, you know, uh, you know one of the staff members wants to set up an adult bookstore down in the office? And, and somebody else says, you know, well, you know, we want to teach a class about why we believe in evolution. And somebody, hey, we can make a little money and we can have a fortune teller kind of set up over here and we can, you know, I mean, you're looking at that and saying, what if we did that as a church? But look, that's crazy, no one would ever do that. And, and there's no way in the world the church that tried to do that would ever, would ever you know, survive. And that's what Jesus is exactly saying. He's saying, now think about this, if, if it's Satan who is involved in creating the demon possession, he's trying to destroy this man, why would Satan who's trying to destroy this man now use his power to liberate the man that he's trying to destroy? He's saying, you know, use your head, what sense would it make for the devil to empower me to deliver people from the devil. I mean, it just is illogical, it's stupid, it's crazy. And then he continues in verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, then who do your sons cast them out? Therefore, there will be judges. And basically what he's saying, okay, some of you, he's, he's saying to this Pharisees, you religious leaders, you have people that are in your group that uh, do exercise, exorcisms sometimes. And they'll see an evil spirit and they'll cast them out. And, and when that happens, you know, you're all saying, hey, this is a power of God. Well, now I'm doing the same thing. No one questions whether this is a true uh, deliverance of a spirit, but the things that you're saying are the power of God. When you do it, now I do the same thing and you're saying it's of Satan. Basically saying, you'll be your own judges. You know, what you say here, you've got to be consistent. And he's again showing that just the craziness, the, the illogicality of their argument continues in verse 29 how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house and the strong man is Satan the house is kind of his kingdom and the goods that he plunders are the, the people that are under his influence and in this illustration he's saying no no I've come down and I've broken down the strong man's house I've tied him up I'm freeing the people that were under his control Now what he's saying is he's not only going a step further, he's not only saying obviously I'm not doing this by the power of Satan, but it's the power of God because it's a power that's not only totally opposed to Satan, but it's a power that's greater than Satan. You know, I'm the one that's you know bound the strong man, he's demonstrating divine power. Now let me stop here because there's an important application for all of us who are followers of Christ here what it's teaching is it's teaching that Satan is a strong man that opposes us and the fact is is as we walk you know apart from Christ and even after Christ there are spiritual powers that are opposed to us it talks about this for example in Ephesians 6 it says for we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against rulers and against the authorities against the cosmic powers of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places There's a reality that we face a real spiritual power. Jesus calls it the strong man here. But the good news is something is taught here that is taught throughout the Bible is there is a strong man that is opposed to us, but Jesus is greater than the strong man. That Jesus has defeated the strong man. It says, for example, in Colossians, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them into open shame by triumphing over them in him. That he has won the victory. Now what that means practically for all of us who are followers of Christ, is there is no sin. There is no problem. There is no crisis. There is no addiction. There is no brokenness. There is nothing that is beyond God's power to heal you from, to set you free from. There is nothing that is greater because Jesus is the strong man. He has defeated all those things. You might be here and you say, man, I'm struggling with this sin and you feel that it has control over you or you're, or you're sitting there and you're dealing with this temptation. You have this addiction that you just can't beat. You're looking at, at brokenness in your marriage and you say, man, I just can't. I don't know how to fix this. This is beyond my ability to fix it. And what I want to tell you is that you are no longer a victim to the strong man. What you need to realize is that Jesus Christ, almighty God has come and at the cross and at the, at the resurrection, he forever defeated the strong man. So why we still face great opposition, Why we will face things that are greater than we are, Jesus has not only defeated him, but he has bound him and he says, okay, I'm not gonna plunder the house by setting the captives free. And that's a part of the story we heard from Tiffany. It's like, this is what God is doing, that Jesus is, is setting the captives free. That's one of the things that we celebrate at Easter. See, one of the ideas of Easter is when we look at it and say, if you understand that Jesus died for our sins, rose from the grave, okay, well, if Jesus defeated sin and he defeated death, what do you face in life that is too great for Jesus to defeat? There's nothing that is too great. See, there's nothing that he cannot overcome. The question is, are you gonna believe that? Are you willing to surrender to him? Are you willing to come and say, God, this is something that I bring to you and I, I want you to do the miracle, I'm willing to, I want you to touch me, I want you to heal me, I want you to give me, you know, give me, give me vision and, and change my life. Or again, sometimes we run away from that because we're afraid of that surrender. See, ultimately, part of what even this gets to is that we have to make a decision regarding Jesus. You know, two groups, two different things that are seeing. And, and Jesus confronts them and saying, okay, now what are you going to decide? Look at verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's a couple things that he's teaching. One is that there's no such thing as neutrality when it comes to Jesus. You know, we can't kind of walk the line. Well, I like this part. I don't like this part. I, you know, some people try to pick and choose. I, you know, I hear people all the time. Well, the Jesus that I believe in wouldn't do that. The Jesus I like to think of, you know, would be like this. And, and we kind of recreate Jesus in our own minds. And then we see some things in the Bible. Well, I don't, really, I don't really believe in that part. And here's what we need to realize. My friends, Jesus is really clear. What he's saying is that you're either with me or you're against me. And the only way to be with him is to accept him for who he is. See, we can't remake Jesus in our own image. There is only one Jesus. It's the Jesus who's revealed himself when he came down to earth, when he was revealed in the Bible. And I've gotta look at that and I've gotta say, either I embrace him for who he is, or what does Jesus say? If you're not with me, you're against me. You're not neutral, you're not kinda of halfway. And No, it's one way or another. And the question is, where do you stand with Jesus? Now again, now some people will come and say, well, not only we're natural, well, I I don't believe for this reason, right? We give these arguments about why we struggle to believe, why we won't surrender. And here's the other thing that he's saying. When we do that, we need to be honest with ourselves about the real reason we're rejecting Jesus. You know, what are they doing? They're claiming, well, it's because his power comes from Satan. Really? Is that because the evidence points you in that direction? or is it because that's what you want to believe in spite of the evidence that points in the exact opposite direction? So again, people do the same thing today. They often try to make some kind of reasonable arguments. Well, here's what I I have this doubt. I just think about this. Well, have you really studied that? Have you really thought about it? You know, appeal to science or to reason. And and really when you usually, when I push on it, when I I come in, it's it's, at the end of the day, it's this is the life that I wanted to live. I don't want to be. I don't want a God to whom I'm accountable. And so therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have all these excuses. I'm going to have all these reasons, not because the reason pushed me in that direction, but in spite of that. See, we don't want to there to be a God. And so what we do is we try to reinterpret the evidence to try to claim it proves the opposite of what it actually shows. Let me give you an example of this. I actually used this about a month ago. Um, It was from, I took it from a series we did in 2016 about creation and evolution. And it's really this, this idea of how you have many people that will argue, scientists especially, that, you know, well, the evidence points towards God not existing. The evidence points towards creation. And, um, and the fact is, is that the evidence actually is the opposite. See, what you find is that they'll refer to science, but when they talk about science, they really mean scientism or materialism. And they're saying the evidence, they're not saying, well, we really look at all the evidence that is out there that we can see. They're starting with a presupposition that God cannot exist. The only thing that exists is the material world. And since God is outside of material world, he cannot exist. And then we're going to go look at the evidence. And since we know that God can't exist, all the evidence points towards evolution, in spite of all the fact that all the evidence actually points that evolution doesn't work. And then what they're doing is, it's like here's the conclusion that it's just like the Pharisees. Here's my conclusion. It's obvious, but I've just got to, you know, I don't want to hear anything else. And it's a little child crying out, da, 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 you know, and it's and willfully blind to the obvious. And, and to, to make this point, I'm, you know, let me take a quote. This is from a guy who was, a, you know, he died a couple of years ago, but it was, a, you know, one of the best known evolutionary scientists in the world, one of the leading scientists. A guy named Richard uh, Lewontin. He's a professor at Harvard, a genesis, uh, a genesis uh, uh, and, and one of the world's leading uh, leaders in evolutionary biology. And he you know, looks into what he wrote. He said, our willingness to accept the scientific claims that are against common sense is a key to understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. You can hear him saying, we're willing to accept claims that are go against common sense, against the obvious. Now, why is that? We take the side of science and when he says science, what he's saying is scientism, materialism. We take the side of the assumption that there cannot be any God. Because we know that to be true before we look at the facts. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs in spite of the failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just so stories because we have a prior commitment a prior a commitment to materialism you're saying the commitment is to materialism we're gonna call that science and therefore we're going to believe what we assume to be true in spite of the fact that all the evidence is saying that it's wrong he continues It's not that we take the methods and institutions of science that somehow compel us to accept the material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our prior adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Now, you see what he's saying? What he's saying here is that, you know, we know this to be case, you know, and, and the fact is we are committed to it in spite of the fact. And all the evidence is pointing us that it doesn't make sense. It's illogical. All the ideas make up. But what? We can't have a divine foot. We can't allow the possibility of God because if there's a possibility of God, if there's a divine foot in the door, well, then the door is blown open because all the evidence is more consistent with creation. The evidence of science is consistent with God. But what's the problem? They don't want to believe that. They're willfully blind as many others are today. Now in this, we've got to look at this and Jesus ends up with this, this challenging section of, of, you know, often referred to the unforgivable sin and, and, but it fits in the context of everything that he's been saying. And what he's saying in this section, it's gonna sound contradictory, but it's gonna make sense as we look at it, that, that in a sense we say, well, God's grace is limitless, but there are boundaries to that limitless grace. And look what he says. Again, there's gonna be some, some of the most misunderstood words of Jesus. People struggle with this. Verse 31, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Now he's saying things that seem contradictory, they're actually paradoxical, that they seem contradictory, but there's something there. And what he's saying is on the one hand, you have God who is incredibly gracious and willing to forgive anything, but on the other hand, it's possible for a person to put themselves outside of God's power to forgive. Look at what he says, verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Now that's an amazing statement. Stop there for a minute. Just think about that. What he's saying is that anything that we do can be forgiven. And when it says whoever speaks a word, word against the Son of Man, you know what I think that it's, it's referencing? I think it's referencing the, the picture of the cross, the crucifixion. What you have at the crucifixion, you have Jesus the most innocent, the most holy, the most loving person of all time, God eternal. And what you have is you have people there at the cross that are there to torture him. You have people that are mocking him, that are spitting on him. They're cursing him. You have the Roman soldiers that are torturing him. They're trying to maximize the pain. And and what does Jesus say to them? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Here you have, you know, the, the worst sins ever done in humanity being done to Jesus, and what you see is Jesus' willingness to forgive. He has infinite willingness to forgive, even for those that are trampling on Him, that are killing Him, that are cursing Him. There is nothing that we can do that is beyond His ability to forgive, beyond His power to forgive. It's amazing what an amazing truth of what He's saying. But then what does he mean when he says, and whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Well, here's part of what I think he's saying. He's saying, okay, that's the truth about God, amazing grace, but don't pit God's grace against his holiness. Don't pit his holiness against his love. And I think what he's saying is, don't think just because I'm, I'm forgiving and that I can forgive anything that you can continue to reject me and do whatever you want and, and, and re, you know, reject my authority and that I have to forgive everything. That everything will ultimately be forgiven. And some people say that. You know, I, I think it's f- summed up that there was a famous quote by a, a German uh, poet back uh, a hundred years or so ago, uh, Hendrik Heining, and, and he said that somebody was asking him at this deathbed, you know, if he was worried that God was going to forgive him or about his eternal state. And his, his comment was, of course, God will forgive me. That's his job. Basically, I can do whatever I want and God has to forgive me. That, that's his job. And what Jesus is saying is, that's not, that's not the case. He will forgive anyone who comes to him and it comes and asks for forgiveness through the cross. But if you reject him, if you say, no, I'm gonna live my own life, the fact of the matter is that no, he won't forgive that. And don't presume upon his love and ignore his holiness. You see, what he's really calling us to is repentance. And, there, and there's a power to repentance here that he's calling us to. Look at verse 31. And this is really the key to understanding all this. He says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now here's, I want you to notice something. It's significant. Notice he starts and says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Do you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say what we think he would say. He doesn't say every sin will be committed forgiven except, or I want you to know that every sin, you know, almost every sin will be forgiven except this here. No, it's an unconditional, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, one statement, then he almost takes it away from the second, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And you're like, okay, how do these things work together? And here's what you have to realize, is what he's doing is he's speaking about external and internal. He's saying externally, everything that you do, anything that any, there isn't a sin that you can do, that you can commit, that is beyond God's ability to forgive every sin and blasphemy that you do can be forgiven will be forgiven if you bring it before christ internally the sin of blasphemy against the holy spirit is when the holy spirit is working on your heart and you're saying i'm not willing to do that i'm not willing to repent i'm denying what god's spirit is doing i'm running away from him that will not be forgiven externally every sin and for- blasphemy will be forgiven it's saying that there is no sin, no deed, nothing that we do, no stain that we do. There's nothing that is like, th- th- God can't wash this out. And my friends, we need to hear this part. There are some people that will look at this passage and I'm not sure if I'm forgiven, I did this. And, and we feel, we look at this passage and, and I've talked to many Christians over the years that, that worry, have I done the unforgivable sin? I've done this terrible thing. And the passage itself is saying, no, there is nothing that is beyond God's ability to forgive. This isn't something that should cause you to worry and, and, you know, and, and ultimately we're gonna see if, you know, if you're worried about that, that's a sign that you're, that you're not guilty of the unforgivable sin. There isn't anything that is beyond God and you look at even the gospel message itself. You, know, you have Paul who was a persecutor of the church, killers of Christians and God not only saved him but he used him as an apostle. You have, you have you know, King David who's out there committed adultery and, and had Bathsheba's husband killed and, and God used him and was gracious towards him. You think about Jesus followers. Think about you know, people, Matthew was a tax collector. He would have been, you know, the, uh, ethically kind of the lowest rung of that time. You have Peter denied Jesus. You have Mary Magdalene who was a prostitute. All these people were leaders in the early church because God is able to forgive anything. There is nothing beyond his grace. But now you have the second part, it's internally. And what it's saying is that if you resist the work of the Holy Spirit, and what's the Holy Spirit doing? He's trying to lead you to repentance. If you resist that, then no matter what you've done, it will not be forgiven. Because that one thing, if you resist the Holy Spirit, if you are unwilling to come to Christ, then it will not be forgiven. What's going on here? See, the Holy Spirit is trying to work through what Jesus is doing. There's a miracle that is done. And most people are looking at that and saying, that's obviously of God. And you have these Pharisees that are just willfully blind that they're saying, but I don't wanna believe it. I don't wanna believe it. They're resisting the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, if you continue to do that, that will not be forgiven. Well, but I, I haven't done that many sins. It doesn't matter how good or bad you are. If we do that, that will not be forgiven. Now, just a couple words of kind of closing. One of encouragement. You know, that there are some that, you know, some people would say, I think I've, have I done the unpardonable sin? I'm worried about that. Here's where I want to encourage you. If you're worried about that, that means that you haven't done the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is basically when we have so seared our conscience against the Holy Spirit that we're no longer able to hear him. And if we're sitting there, we're worried about this. And actually, in actuality, if you surrender your, your sins to Christ, the passage is telling you to have confidence of the forgiveness, it's not to cause you to worry. If you're still controlled by guilt, you know, this is a call, this passage to say, come to Christ, come and let him heal you. And you might even say, well, I feel Satan's had this control and if you're in oppressed, come, he help, he, he, he come, come to him, he touches, he heals, he restores. That's what he wants to do in your life. Are you willing to come to him today? But there's also a word of challenge. You see, what he's looking at is the Pharisees here and he's saying, okay, there's a warning because you're shutting your eyes, you don't wanna see this. And there may be times where God is coming and he's saying he's speaking to you and I've talked to people, it's like, I know that God is speaking but I don't wanna come now, I'll maybe come later. And what Jesus is saying, be careful because you could become, God's got your conscience sensitive now and, and if you continue to say no, it can become so seared that you're unable to, to hear it. Don't presume his grace, don't continue to think that you can come back later. Now, you might say, what's too late for me? I want you to see, he's saying this to the Pharisees and he's not saying it's too late for them, he's saying this is a warning, you can still come. And if you're here today and God's speaking to you, it's not too late for you. See, God is calling you and saying, today is the day of salvation, today is the day to come. Now you might be, well, but I wanna walk away and come back later. No, he's saying today is the day of salvation, today is the day to come. Don't presume that you're gonna be sensitive in another day. You know, don't continue to just, you know, deny the work of the Holy Spirit. See that it's the Holy Spirit. God is calling you to this. And for some, it might be the day to say, God is speaking to me. And today's the day that I want to surrender. It might be, God is me and convicting me that something I've been doing is out of line with him. It's wrong, that he wants to change me. And today's the day to surrender. Today's the day to come and let him touch you, to let him heal you. And he will do that. But don't walk away with the pride and presumption that you can walk away and one day maybe later on, you'll respond to the call because I cannot guarantee that your conscience will be able to hear that call at that time and that's the warning that God has given us. But it's a call of grace. And I hope that each one of us are able to hear this is a call of grace. Not to you know, be careful, don't, I don't want to be willfully blind. But the fact of the matter is each one of you that God is speaking to, he's speaking to you because you're not there and he wants to touch you and he wants to heal you. Today's the day that you come to him. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life slash connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.